morning, y'all. Um, I just want to say before we start, I just want to thank you for all of your um, support and love and prayers and financial support uh, for the mission that we've created in uh, Poland for the Ukraine refugees. Um, we have raised over $100,000 in just a little more than a week, and um, that's going to have a huge impact. <clears throat> and uh, go directly to the refugees, so we're pretty excited about that. Uh, today we are continuing in our series, The Story of the Bible, and what we've been really trying to do is help everybody to connect the dots, to kind of see how the whole Bible fits together uh, to create this one you know, incredible, life-changing story. And so today, we're going to move from the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus into the book of Acts, um, which really talks about the beginning of the early church. And I, I don't know if you've ever kind of just thought about this, but how this whole Christianity thing got started. I mean, it's really amazing when you think about, like, who started it, how did it take off, like, how did this handful of believers that met together in an upper room in the beginning to now have more than two and a half billion followers across the world. I mean, the Christian faith went viral, and the question is, how did all that happen? And so today we're just going to look at the very, very early stages that laid the framework for that, and it all starts with Jesus. Um, as you can imagine, he has just risen from the dead and he has accomplished his mission, and now it's time for him to go back to the heavenly realms. And before he leaves, he gathers his disciples around him, and he says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and even unto the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes until a cloud hid him from their sight. That in and of itself is incredible, but we're going to focus in on the statement before, which is the last recorded statement um, of Jesus here while he was on this earth, and it's commonly referred to as the Great Commission. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even into the ends of the earth. And what I think what he's really saying is, do you understand the magnitude of what just happened? Like, you've been thinking too small. And if you try to contain this life-changing message in some small cultural box, it's not going to work. This thing is bigger than just the region of Israel. It's worldwide. Jesus' intention from the very beginning was that God would not be exclusively just for the Jewish people, but his plan was that through his apostles, the gospel of Jesus would expand to all people. But I have to tell you, a lot of people fought it, a lot of people didn't like it, and that plan would not be an easy one. So I think it's interesting to note that everything that we have um, looked at up to this point in this series in the Bible from the story of Abraham to the Gospel of John, has really been um, basically looking at the story of God through the lens of the Jewish culture, right? I mean, it's, um, when, you, when you look at 
kind of as, as we're moving into uh, Christianity and, and kind of how the Christian faith started, I mean, you look at Jewish, uh, Jesus himself was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. Even the first church was Jewish. The mothership, so to speak, was in Jerusalem, which is the heartbeat of the Jewish people, and it was led by Jesus' half-brother, James, and so it was distinctly Jewish. So Christianity begins as this kind of Jewish movement who became the first followers of Jesus at the time, because you have to remember that in Judaism, even today, there is a promised Messiah, and these people realized that Jesus was the promised Messiah and accepted him as such. However, while God wanted the Christian faith to start with the Jewish people, almost like they had a right of first refusal because they were God's chosen people, he really wanted to open it up and to make it accessible to the entire world so that it would become a faith for now all people. It wouldn't be confined to that one culture. Sounded like a nice idea at the time. But one of the many problems with this plan was that Jewish law did not even allow for a Jewish person to come into contact with or be in relationship with a Gentile. And a Gentile is just a word for somebody who is not Jewish. And so most of us here today would be considered Gentiles in this context. And so it was, it was an issue. And so when you get to the book of Acts, chapter 10, Peter speaks to this group of Jews, and he goes inside, he finds a large group of gathering, and he says to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit, even visit, a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but instead accepts everyone from any nation who follows him and does what is right. So really, the transition of Christianity is about to begin with this kind of aha moment that Peter has as a result of a vision that was given to him from God that kind of shows him that this faith in God, this Christianity thing, is bigger than just the Jewish people. This thing is about to go worldwide. And so a debate breaks out among Christians, if you could imagine the church ever debating anything. And the debate brings out about Christians in Jerusalem as to whether or not they should be, I mean, they're debating this, whether they should be actually taking the Christian faith to the Gentile people or not. And to make a very, very long story, I'm going to skip all the details and just get down to the point. Peter takes a stand, he takes leadership in this moment at what has become known as the Council of Jerusalem, and he convinces everybody that they should indeed follow what Jesus wants, which is to take uh, the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. But in this meeting, they also decide that the Apostle Paul, who at the time is called Saul, is just the guy to do it. So they say, okay, we'll take it to the Gentiles, but that guy, he should be the guy that does it. Now, Here's the crazy thing about that, is it seems that nobody hated Christians more than this one guy. Like, in fact, Saul made it his entire life's mission to put the Christian faith to death. And as a Pharisee, Saul absolutely hated everything that Christianity was about because it disrupted the teachings and the traditions of the Jewish people. And so to him... 
This counter movement that would soon be called Christianity was the height of blasphemy and heresy against the Jewish faith, and he was going to do whatever he had to do to stop it. And so in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, And Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Can you imagine? Believe me when I say that every Christian in Palestine knew the name of Saul, but not because he was well-liked. It was because he was feared. Saul had become the most ruthless prosecutor of anyone who associated themselves as being followers of Jesus. But, all of a sudden, something changes in Saul. Saul flips. He goes from being the number one enemy of the church to becoming a card-carrying follower of Jesus Christ. And everybody's looking like, what happened? <laughs> like, can we really even believe that this guy is legit? But what happened was, Saul and his companions were traveling to a town called Damascus to go and they were going to hunt them down some Christian folk and throw them in jail or have them killed for their faith. But on the road to Damascus, something happens. They encounter something incredible. And in Acts chapter 9, it tells the story that suddenly there was this light. And it shined from heaven and flashed around him. And Saul fell to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Let me just tell you something. If you're Saul, you're freaking out right now. Right? I mean, he knows. If this is who he thinks it is, he's toast. It certainly seems like his first, his worst fears are coming true when he replies back and he says, well, who are you, Lord? Well, he knows who it is, right? And this is that literal come to Jesus moment when he's got to come face to face with what he knows is on the other side. And then his fears are confirmed and his heart has to sink when that voice answers back, I am Jesus. I am the one who you are persecuting and going after against and going after my people. Now get up and go into the city and I will tell you what to do next. In this moment, Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. I mean, it's an amazing story and I didn't get into all the details but, and I would encourage you to read it um, in Acts chapter nine. But when you look at Saul's conversion, through the lens of how the Christian faith was started, this is a critical event. This is uber important. One scholar put it like this, apart from the resurrection of Jesus, the conversion of Saul was the most important event in human history. If Saul had remained a Jewish rabbi, we would not only be missing 13 of 27 books of the New Testament, but the Christian faith would still be limited to the region of Palestine. I mean, if you think about it, this makes perfect sense. If, if you're God and you want to make the Christian faith go global, who do you want to lead that charge? The guy who's the most adamantly opposed to it and is known as the opposition leader against the Christian faith. If you want to have one person who could have the most impact, there is no question it would be Saul. And if you could take the passion that he has 
for persecuting the church and turn that into becoming a proponent of the church. Wow. I mean, you can't stop this guy. That's exactly what happened. When you also consider just Paul, Saul's background, the fact that he was born in Tarshish, which is now part of modern-day Turkey. He was born into a Jewish family, but he had dual citizenship. And so he had a Jewish education and upbringing, and he was raised to be a Jewish leader. He was raised to be a Jewish scholar. He was raised to be a Pharisee. However, he was also a Roman citizen with all the rights and privileges therein, and he was also fluent in Greek and understood the Greek and Roman cultures, which allowed him to fully understand and identify with everybody else who was living in the modern world at this time. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, there's this tiny little verse, and it's almost like an afterthought, but all of a sudden it just says this one thing real quick. It says, then Saul, who was also called Paul. This verse is the trigger whereby from this point forward, In the Bible, this man who was once a ruthless persecutor and enemy of the Christian faith now takes on a new identity, and from this point forward, he is called Paul or the Apostle Paul. It's interesting that Saul is a very, very Jewish name. I mean, his parents were members of the tribe of Benjamin, and so they named their kid after the first king of Israel, which was a great man named King Saul, and King Saul was from their tribe, so that made sense. But now, in this conversion experience, he takes on this very, very Greek name, Paul, which I think is not only symbolic of the fresh start and new life as a follower of Jesus that he's taking up, but also taking on a Greek name because Paul will become the one who will quarterback the expansion of the Christian faith and transition it from a Jewish cultural faith into a faith that opens up to the whole rest of the world, which is very dominated by Greek culture during this time. He's the perfect fit. And so if I'm God, I'm super happy that this strategic acquisition of of Paul is going to be the guy to expand the church to the ends of the earth as Jesus wants to do. Simultaneously with that, the followers of Jesus also undergo a name change. They're kind of out there wandering around first, and and so some people call them the way, and they're kind of nameless. But there comes a point in Acts chapter 11 where it says the disciples were first called Christians, which means little Christ and Antioch. This is really important because it is right here that the Christian faith begins to peel away from its Jewish roots and becomes a religion that of its own for all people. It's here that being a follower of Jesus becomes distinctly Christian, distinguishing itself from the Jewish faith, which is a religion that goes on to actually reject Jesus as the promised Messiah. So in the meantime, the Apostle Paul went on to complete what are known as the three missionary journeys. So he 
went all over the modern world at the time to several different countries where he was shipwrecked and put in prison and beaten and left for dead. He had just this crazy time. However, during this time, he successfully planted more than 20 churches in strategic locations around the world, which became the foundation for the Christian faith to go global. Paul had a great run. And it was amazing to see the transformation that took place in his life. Paul's final journey ended in Rome, where tradition holds that Paul was tortured and then beheaded in Rome by the evil emperor Nero somewhere around 67 AD. It's amazing to see how Saul's life played out completely different than who he was raised to be, and yet he was able to break free of the mold of his life and where he was supposedly destined to become something completely different. He became someone who was passionate about his faith, a faith that he wasn't born into. And I think the question is for all of us is, are we able to break out of the mold that we were created to have from the very beginning? To break out of the cultural modes that some of us have and the molds that some of us are living in because this is what we think our parents want or because this is just the trajectory of how life began, and so we just continue on with the daily grind. Have we been able to break free of that mold and live free of that to become the person God created us to be? When you go back and you look at the Great Commission back in Acts chapter 1, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth, when... when When Jesus uses that word witness, I think it's really important because when you translate that word witness, what it means is someone who has seen or experienced something firsthand. It's not hearsay. It's not a rumor. They're just not telling something that's fictional. They have firsthand evidence. They've seen it with their own eyes. They've experienced it. And that's what a witness is all about. That's important because when you look at what the disciples did when Jesus was first crucified, when they witnessed his death, they ran. They took off. They were disillusioned and scared and defeated that this man that they had given their life for was now dead. And so they ran when they witnessed his death. But after witnessing firsthand a resurrected Jesus, all of a sudden, they become fearless. These guys risked everything to spread the word about Jesus around the world. And like Paul, they too faced imprisonment and beatings and death, and yet they never, ever backed down from their mission. And I have to tell you this. As a skeptic, this helps me believe because I know that these men would have never risked their lives for something that they saw firsthand if they knew it was a fraud. They believed because they saw it. And now they have become witness to the fact that Jesus has conquered death, which gave them this fearless hope. And that hope went viral. The Great Commission 
is not just for the 12 apostles. It's for us too. And it's like Jesus is passing the baton on now to our generation, asking us to bring light into a very dark world. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, I want you to be my Bible scholars throughout the entire world. Or I need you to be able to argue with people and tell people why you're right and they're wrong about their faith or their beliefs. Or that you need to prove creation versus evolution. He just says, I just want you to be my witnesses. I just want you to tell firsthand the story of what God has done in your life. Who you were before and who you are now, and how he has changed your life so profoundly that you just have to talk about it. You want to share it. That's what being a witness is all about. It's not cramming your belief down somebody else's throat. It's just sharing your story about what God has done for you. You see, that's the difference, I think, between religion and faith, a living, breathing faith, is we stop doing things because this is the way that I was raised culturally to do things. And we bust out of the mold and we do something that is transformative and it changes the way that I see the world. It opens it up and gives me a bigger vision, a Christian worldview of what's possible where God is now accessible to all people. To the point that I can now begin to see my own life strategically, how I am strategically placed in the world in this point in time in history so that I'm here so that I can make a difference in this little space. I'm here so that I can be a witness to the family and friends and people around my life. That I can make a difference in my own little way. This passage, the church, is about mission, a personal mission. It's about living with intentionality, that we stop living checked out, and we start really understanding who we are and what's possible when we begin to become the person that God created us to be. Anytime God has ever wanted to do something in the world, he always does it through ordinary people like you and me. He takes ordinary, flawed, messed up, struggling people and he helps us to do extraordinary things that we never ever thought possible. And he just asks us, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we bring a little bit of heaven to people who desperately need I think that when you look at the life of Paul and the mission of the church and what we're talking about today, I, I think that you can't just even help but ask the question of yourself, what am I doing with my life? What's my purpose? Am I living with intentionality or am I just living checked out, just doing the grind day in and day out? Am I really being a witness to simply share how the love of God has changed my life forever? Or do I shrink back from my own story? 
Look, well, I am sometimes embarrassed, and I'll be honest. I am embarrassed sometimes to call myself a Christian because of all the stupid things that people do in the name of Christianity. I hate that. But I am never, ever embarrassed to call myself a follower of Jesus. I love everything about what he's about. I love his teachings. I love what he did. I love who he is. I love the story of what God has done in my life because I have been a messed up person that he has changed. And when I cut through all the fog of all the junk in this world, of everything that competes for my time, of everything that competes for who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do, there is only one thing that I have found that is true, that is real. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the only thing in my life that I have found that is worth my time, that is worth me investing my life in. Everything he says, everything he did rings true for me, and I have to tell you, I believe. And because of that belief, I am walking a completely different path than I was destined to do. I have been able to break out of the mold because of my beliefs and live differently and live counterculturally. And it's scary sometimes because there's no safety net. But I have to tell you, that belief is what drives me. And that's a story. That's a story I'm willing to share. And I'm happy to be a witness about that.